So if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through a series on Jesus, and we've been looking at different aspects of Jesus' life and who Jesus is. Now, we started this off by looking at Jesus' birth, and now we're looking at his life, and soon as we approach Easter, we'll be looking at his death. But right now, we've been looking at you know, different aspects in the life of Jesus and who he is. Daniel talked last NYA about Jesus being the healer. And tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus being Lord. And as I think about this topic of Jesus being Lord, I, I, I break this up into two main categories as I see Jesus as being first Lord of the universe, right? I, I like the way that sounds, right? Master of the universe. But he, he's more than just Lord of the universe. He is Lord of our lives. And so I want to look at these two different aspects of Jesus. He's Lord of the universe but he's also Lord of our lives. Now, I don't know about you and in your relationship with God and where it's at. I don't know if you're following God or not. I don't know if you believe in God or not. But I remember for myself, as I have wrestled through my relationship with God, I didn't necessarily grow up in a Christian family, although I've always believed that God existed. I had a question, though, that that I wrestled with one day when, when I was 17, that I committed my life to the Lord, I began to have this question in my mind, um, you know, does God exist? And I was just asking myself, do you actually believe that God exists, Andy? And I remember having this profound moment as I'm wrestling through that question where I said to myself, yes, I actually do believe that God exists. And, I, and I'm kind of like talking to myself at this point, and I ask myself, well, why don't you live like that's true? And, and, I, and I began to struggle with this idea that I have a faith, but it's not a very strong faith. And, and ultimately, as this faith begins to be nurtured, I end up heading off to Bible college. And I, and I came to Canada. And as I came to Canada and I began to, to learn more about God, I began to realize that I had different beliefs that I had, that I, that I really didn't know why I had them or whether or not they were even true. I remember coming to, to contact with my first belief that I, that I didn't know why I held, and that was whether or not I believed that Jesus was Lord of the universe. I, I came out to Canada to go to a Bible college, and, and I gotta be honest with you, I don't think I was really there to learn yet. But my car broke down, and the alternator broke. I had this beautiful 1978 Dodge Colt. It was literally the ugliest car on the planet. <laughs> and not even, like, the, the body parts didn't even match color-wise. Like, I pieced this thing together. That's when I knew, by the way, that my wife truly loved me is because she still dated me even though I was driving that car. Like, I'm like, this girl truly loves me. And this, so this thing breaks down. I go into Langley. I get the part. I'm heading back to campus. I'm waiting at a bus stop, and a Jehovah's Witness begins to, to minister to me, begins to evangelize to me, and ask me if I want to know Jesus, to which I begin to tell him all the things that I know about Jesus. And we begin to get into this conversation that becomes heated because I didn't know that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is Lord of the universe. They think he's an angel. They think he's a cool guy, but he's definitely not God. And this guy's all getting into my face, and I got this like fight circle coming around me and I'm thinking I'm going to get beat with a Bible by a Jehovah's Witness <laughs> and I will never forget as long as I live honestly as he gets he gets right in my face with his Bible and he thrusts it into my chest and he goes you show me a verse in there that says 
that Jesus is God. And it was just silent on the street corner, all these people around me. And I just was like, I got nothing. It was one of the most shameful moments of my life. Like, I just got on this bus and went back. I got to tell you, honestly, as I got back on that bus, Andy Steiger was a student. I got back on that bus, and I'm like, man, I'm going I'm to look into this whole thing. Why do I believe that Jesus is God? And should I believe it? Is there any reason to actually believe that that's the case? I began to study God's word, really began to look into the questions about my faith, and I ultimately went back to a Jehovah's Witness church. It's a true story. I knock on the door, man. I go back there like, hey, what's up? I'm like, hey, listen, I got to talk to somebody about Jesus. They're like, what? You coming to our door? I'm like, I'm coming to your door. I'm like, do you got any like elders or anybody that I could talk to? And they're like, yeah. So I'm meeting. I met twice with them because I wanted to know, did I actually have this right? I mean, does this actually hold up? What would they say to this? So listen, if you have your Bible, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about Jesus being God. And I just want to first take a quick look at this, and I just want to ask, what does the Bible say about Jesus being God? I mean, what do people say about Jesus? So the first one that I want to do, and listen, we're just going to be thumbing through the Bible here. Flip over to uh, John. That's often where you'll go first, right? You'll look at John chapter 1, verse 1, in which John tells us this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Jesus is God, John's saying. But a Jehovah's Witness, right, they'll read that and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. They'll throw an article in front of that and say, no, 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 Jesus was a God. He's not the God. He's just a God and more, he's just, he's just an angel. He's just a really great guy, but he's not God. But don't listen what happens here, though. John continues, and he says, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus, John's saying, made everything. But what does Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tell us? It says, God made everything. And John's ultimately drawing this conclusion, saying, listen, the Bible begins with Genesis 1, verse 1. God created the universe. He's starting his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus made everything. Jesus is Lord of the universe. Now, I want to continue this, so flip with me over to um, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle Paul says this about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like, Paul's saying? Well, look to Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he takes us a step further. I'm in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and in the book of Hebrews, he says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son, verse three now, the son is the, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He created the universe. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus is God. Like, listen, I don't, I don't know how you get any more clear than that, but we're going to try. So then, flip with me over to um, Philippians. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, again here, uh, verse 6, says, uh, Jesus... 
being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Again, it's very clear. Jesus is God. Now listen, I could, I could go further, but I'm just going to pause there. So there's lots more verses I could talk about. If you want to hear more, come talk to me afterwards. I got a list of them. Yes, you can have it. Uh, come talk to me afterwards. But what I want to do now is I want to ask a different question because this is, this is what will often get pushed back at me is people will say, well, well, Andy, okay, I see you've done these different verses and these people are saying that Jesus is God, but what does Jesus actually say about himself? I mean, where in the Bible does Jesus actually say, I am God? And the, and the reality is, is there is no verse there is no verse in the Bible that you can go find where Jesus is going to say, I am God. And there is a very good reason for that. And I remember when this hit me, it was like it was the penny dropping moment, because I began to realize that there are moments in our lives where we come before the Bible and we will take a 21st century understanding and we will impute it into a first century, particularly the New Testament, a first century document written uh, in, in about Jewish culture. And when you begin to realize this and, and begin just to take a moment to, to, to pause and to think about what you're doing, you begin to realize that asking the question, where does Jesus say, I am God, is a silly question. In fact, a Jew would say, whoa, 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 you, you're asking the wrong question. That's, that's not the right question. See, you have to understand and this is sometimes forgotten on us, that when we're reading the New Testament, we're reading a Greek document that is documenting conversations that took place, particularly with the Gospels about Jesus, that took place in Aramaic. Aramaic is a dialect of Hebrew, and so it is, it is recording what's taking place amongst these Jews, Jesus being a Jew, and the reality is, is that Jews did not pronounce God's name. God's name is holy. In fact, it's so holy that, that the Jews removed the vowels from God's name. And so his name Yahweh was unpronounceable. They would only write it. And out of reverence for God, they would never say his name. So you need to take that into consideration, right? You have to ask this question, well, if Jesus is going to say he's God, how could he do that if there's no way he can actually say God's name? And what you begin to realize is that if you can't say God's name, and throughout the whole Old Testament, God's name isn't pronounced, God's name's only written in the Bible, the Jews begin to get in this habit of they, they don't say God's name, instead they describe God. And in fact, this is what God does when he reveals himself, particularly to Moses at the burning bush. Moses, uh, as, as God's revealing himself to Moses, he says, listen, I want you to go back to, to Pharaoh you know, and say, let my people go. And, and Moses is like, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? And, and God says, you go tell him that I am that I am has sent you. You go tell him that the, by the way, that's a claim of aseity or self-existence. And he's saying, listen, you go tell Pharaoh that the self-existent one has sent you. Right, you go tell him that the one who's created everything has sent you. He'll know who that is. See, that's a language that transcends culture and, and, and different languages. That's a name that transcends languages. 
That's the name of God in that we all know who the self-existent creator of the universe, the, the, the almighty is. He'll know who that is. And so what you find then, uh, grabbing your Bible with me again, the passage that I want to look at tonight uh, as we, there's, there's two sections in Mark chapter 2 that we're going to be looking at. And what happens here in Mark chapter 2 is it's going to talk about Jesus being Lord of the universe and it's going to talk about Jesus being Lord of your life. And I wanted to set that up for you before we come to the scriptures so that you get an understanding of what Jesus is doing and what he's saying and why the Jews react to him the way that they do. I find that this is often lost on us because we forget how a Jew would talk about God. We forget that a Jew would need to describe God. And as you begin to see this, what you begin to see throughout the gospel is that Jesus is constantly referring to himself as God because Jesus constantly claims those aspects of, of God on himself. And, and if I could just actually just take a moment just to show you this before we... Uh, Jump into Mark chapter 2. If you go, for example, to uh, John uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 58, for example, Jesus is talking to some people and he's talking about Abraham and he's talking away that he's been with Abraham. And they say to him in verse 57 of chapter 8, they say, You're not even 50 years old. I mean, how have you seen Abraham? And Jesus responds, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And, and by the way, uh, there's no confusion as to what Jesus just said because what did the Jews do? At this, they picked up stones to stone him, right? Because that's what you do when somebody claims to be God. And you're like, man, well, does it get any more clear than that? Yeah, it does. Just flip over with me to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, uh, Jesus tells his disciples in verse six that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says in verse seven, now, if you really knew me, you would know the Father as well, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And then Philip responds and he says, Lord, this is awesome, right? Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. To which Jesus responds to him, do you not know me, Philip? Even if after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Jesus is, is drawing these comparisons between him and the Father and that they are one. Now, flipping back over to March, Mark. Mark chapter two. Notice what Jesus does here. Now, last NYA, uh, Daniel was talking about Jesus being the healer and that was just a couple more uh, chapters into uh, Mark, and this we, we're starting a little bit earlier, but what you see in the book of Mark is that Mark is constantly showing you these different episodes in the life of Jesus, and he's, he's showing you how um, the, the power that Jesus has, but he's doing so for a reason. Mark is constantly showing you these miraculous things that Jesus did because he wants to challenge you with the question who is this Jesus? Who is this person that can do all these miracles? And people begin to gather around Jesus and they're amazed at his powers and his abilities. And we find that, like, that there are so many people that want to come and to hear from him and to be healed by him that, 
that there's not even enough room at this house for all these people in Mark chapter 2. And so these, these people are, they're all gathered in and they're all pressing in on Jesus and there's these guys who have a friend that's, that's paralyzed and they want to get him in front of Jesus. And so you've, you've heard this story before, right? They come, they, they pull apart the roof and they lower this man on, on a stretcher down to Jesus. And I'm picking this up in verse five now, that as this paralyzed man becomes before Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, um, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine the confusion, right? It's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, do you not see that he's paralyzed? Right, like we brought him here so that you would heal his body, but you are seeking to heal his spirit. And, 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 and by the way, the only person that can forgive sins is God. I mean, who, who are those sins committed against? They're committed against God. So if those offenses are committed against God, the only person that can forgive those offenses is God. And so by you claiming to be the forgiver of sins, you're claiming to be God. By the way, this is the name of God in, in, in the, the Old Testament. God is the forgiver of sins, right? God's the, the judge, God is, you know, and you, you have all these different attributes of God that are continually piled up throughout the Old Testament that this is who God is. And the people aren't confused. Notice in verse six here that now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there and they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. See, I think there's a lot of times we'll read a scripture like this and we'll be like, what, he blasphemed? He just said your sins are forgiven. Yeah, yeah. He's claiming God's attributes on himself. And you get this sense as you're reading a passage like this that the Jews are beginning to like take a step back from Jesus because they're like, man, you can't be talking like that, Jesus. God gonna smite you with a lightning bolt, you know? Like we gotta, we gotta back up because God's going to destroy you. It says, right, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And now verse eight. Immediately, Jesus, knowing in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, of course, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because nobody knows whether or not that actually happened. But the truth is, it's actually harder to forgive sins if you were actually able to do that. You would need to be God in the flesh. But to be able to heal his physically bo physical body and he would be able to walk away, now that would be quite something. And then Jesus says in verse 10 here, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And notice what is, what we, what's recorded here. Verse 12, he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, I want you to think about what's so amazing about this. Jesus has just made a claim of divinity upon himself by, by saying that he can forgive this man's sins. 
you get this understanding that Jesus should be smoted with a light bolt, lightning bolt, right? Like he should be knocked down. He should be destroyed. But instead of God, you know, bringing his judgment upon Jesus, instead what happens is, is God brings his approval on Jesus and this man's healed and walks away and the people's minds are blown as they're realizing he just claimed to be God and God just put his stamp of approval on it. You can imagine this, they're going, we've never seen anything like this. And you can tell they're wrestling with how to even process that. And as you go through the New Testament, as you go through Mark, he just brings up story after story going, look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus did. And as Daniel talked about last time, look at how he even brought the dead back to life. Who can do that? Who can tell a storm to stop? Who can tell the dead to rise? Who is this Jesus? Everything comes to this climax in chapter 14 in looking at this life of, of Christ particularly as Mark brings us along. And I want to ask you something that maybe you've never thought about before. And that is, uh, why was Jesus crucified? Why did they murder him? What offense did he make? And it's interesting, we, we read what offense he, he committed in Mark chapter 14, uh, looking at verse 60 here, Jesus is brought to court, right? He's brought before Caiaphas, the high priest. And we read that when the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you going to answer what, the, what is your testimony that these men bring against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, now notice what the high priest does here. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now notice, this is a conversation in Aramaic between two Jews that are talking about him claiming to be Yahweh. They can't say God's name, so they're doing workarounds. Jesus, are you claiming to be the blessed one, the son of the blessed one? Are you claiming to be God? To which Jesus replies, verse 62, I am. This is both an affirmation and a claim of aseity upon himself. And then Jesus takes one step further and he claims a prophecy from Daniel of God's coming judgment, and he claims it in his own authority, and he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest is not confused. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes, and he said, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. Jesus was crucified for blasphemy. Jesus was murdered for claiming to be God. And what happens? See, this is, by the way, this is such an interesting moment in the Gospels. You see these disciples, these 12 disciples following Jesus, and they have seen all these miracles, and all the way up into this point where Jesus is arrested, they all end up fleeing. They all abandon him. I've always been amazed by that, right? They, they, even saw, they saw so many miraculous things and yet still they just left him. And I think the reason is, is because they had doubt. They weren't really sure who this guy was and they definitely weren't ready to die for it. But here Jesus is crucified. He's, he's committed, to, he's murdered for claiming to be God and what happens three days later? He raises to life. 
I mean, this is truly unbelievable. If, if Jesus should remain dead, it, it, it would be for the fact that he was telling a lie. God shouldn't allow him to come back to life. But Jesus says, listen, you don't take my life, I lay it down, and I can bring it back up again. And it is an affirmation of, of the greatest kind that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and his disciples followed him to their death. They realized that Jesus was walking, talking, eternal life, that Jesus had not only defeated death, but he was who he claimed to be. Notice what happened there. We have Jesus as Lord of the universe. He's, he's God. And ultimately, Jesus' divinity has a direct bearing on whether or not you're going to follow him. Whether or not you will make him Lord of your life. You see, that's where I found myself when I was 17. Did I believe God existed? Yeah, I did. Did I want to follow God? I wasn't sure. Did I know who that God was? I wasn't quite sure about that either. But I ultimately decided that I wanted to know who this God was, and if I really believed that it was true, I wanted to live as though it was true. And this would bring me on a path that would ultimately change my life. And as we continue in this narrative that Mark has us on here in Mark chapter two, we see that this is, this is the, the, the step that begins to take place as Jesus is walking, and he meets this guy named Levi. We read in verse 13, that once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a crowd came to him. Again, right, these large crowds are, are, are checking this guy out and, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth and he looks at him and he says, follow me. And what does Levi do? Levi, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus told him and, and Levi got up and followed him. And this is... Such, there's, there's so much going on here. I just want to unpack a little bit of this for you. The first thing that's going on here when you read about this tax collector is you might be thinking in your mind uh, that maybe this is like tax season and like, you know how we have to like once a year pay taxes or we have to pay taxes when we buy things. You're like, what kind of taxes is happening here? It's neither of those taxes. This kind of a tax collector's booth, this would have been a, in a place where goods were being transported. The, Levi was a border official. He was like a border guard, but he was the border guard in, that's like sitting in the building, and he's the one who's asking you what kind of stuff you're, you're importing, exporting, and he's the one who's taxing you on that. And it's interesting because uh, people's hatred for border guards goes back into ancient times, man. Like, we haven't changed. I was reading a, a, a Jewish, I was reading a historian from that time, a guy by the name of Plutarch, and he writes this. This is so good, man. Things haven't changed. He says, we are annoyed and displeased with custom officials. Not when they pick up those articles which we are importing openly. I love this. But when they search our concealed goods and they pry into our baggage and merchandise, which is another's property. Oh, man, we've all been there. And yet the law allows them to do this, and they would lose out by not doing so. Man, times have not changed. <laughs> I had this happen to me, by the way, uh, 
uh, last year, I was flying back from Africa, and I was in a layover in Belgium, and I was one of those poor fools that gets picked randomly, and they're like, you got to go find that guy's luggage out of the plane, bring it over here, you know, and I'm about to miss my flight because they are rummaging through all of my possessions, you know, in front of everybody, and you just feel horrified, but the worst part was, and this is, kid you not, this actually happened, they un- this is worst case scenario, they unzip your bag, and they opened it up, and there is a bottle in there that I have no idea. It's one of those expensive uh, hydro flasks, which I don't own, and it's in my bag. And I remember going, whoa, whoa, that's not mine. Like, that's what you don't want to have to say to a border official, man. I don't know how that got in there. That ain't mine. And then, I, and then the, this lady, she goes, oh, it isn't, right? She goes right to it, and she goes, open it up, and she looks in, and I look in, and I see there's nothing, and I go, whoa, whoa, that might be mine. That might, I go, you know what, maybe, maybe that was my buddy's. And she goes, oh, okay, yeah, maybe it was. She puts it back in, like, <laughs> I, to this day, I have no idea how a hydroflask got into my bag. So if you want one, go to Africa. You might find one in your bag. So, so this is who this Levi is. He's one of those people everyone would have hated. He's the guy digging through your luggage. He's looking for anything he can to tax you. And the better at his job he is, the more money he's making. And the people despise these people. They despise tax collectors. And, and what's more, his name's Levi. I know there's a... Okay, it's not that bad. Although there are some Levi's here. We love having Levi's here. Levi would have indicated that he would have come from a religious family, a family that, that would have been uh, able to work in the temple. And here's somebody who, who you could say, you know, is, is destined for a job pastoring, and yet instead of going in that direction, he's, he's taken the direction of working in a tax collector's booth, a despicable profession for, for the Jews. And, and he, here he's working for the man, you know, taking his stuff. And Jesus comes along, this individual who I'm sure was hated in the community and dealt with his own insecurities, and Jesus calls out to him to follow him. And this, this is one of those scenes in the Bible that remind us of Jesus' love and Jesus' calling on our lives in, in the mess that you and I might find ourselves in, as Jesus calls out with this simple call, just follow me. And as I was just reading this passage uh, this week, and as I was just praying through this, it reminded me of uh, a movie that I saw a number of years ago. There's this great uh, Jesus movie called Jesus, the Greatest Story Ever Told, I believe is the name of it. And it was this made-for-TV uh, drama series of the life of Jesus. I don't think it ever got put into movie form, or I don't think you can buy it. But it was such a, an interesting uh, depiction of Jesus' life. You know, it was, it was very typical in some ways because Jesus is like blonde hair, blue eye, pale as can be, you know, definitely not the Jesus of antiquity, uh, of Jewish origin, but, but whatever. And and you're, but one of the things I love about this movie, though, is, is although they got some of that stuff wrong, they got these other aspects just so right. There are these interesting moments in the movie, and one in particular, where there's this lady, uh, Mary Magdalene, 
And you see this, the, these the two stories are intersecting. You see Mary Magdalene's story, and they go with this very typical idea that she was a prostitute, although the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible just says that she was healed by Jesus of, of demon possession. But what you see, though, that's significant is you see a lady who has ruined her life. She, she's an absolute wreck. Everything's crumbling in on her. Um, she, she's a mess. And, and she's walking by in this village. And here comes Jesus. And Jesus is smiling. He's laughing. He's got friends. Like, like people are following him, right? Like you see this, this life that's flourishing. And, and these two lives are beginning to intersect. And as Mary Magdalene walks by Jesus in this town square, Jesus just takes this moment. Now, the scene didn't actually happen in the Bible, but the, the essence of the dialogue is so true. As Jesus stops, he looks over at her and says, hey, why don't you follow me? And, and she stops and kind of, she's intrigued by Jesus, but she's not sure what to do. And she asks this typical question that you and I ask. She goes, well, where are you going? And I think that that's so, so true of many of us as we think about this idea of making or allowing Jesus to be Lord of our lives. We want to know where he's going. Well, where are you going to take me, Jesus? Are you going to take me somewhere I want to go or someplace I don't want to go? And, and I love the response that they have Jesus say back to her as Jesus looks back at her and says, does it really matter? Just follow me. And as I think about that, I think, you know, how true is that? I mean, does it really matter where you're going, Jesus? You're Lord of the universe. You created everything. You are life. You are hope and love. I mean, does it really matter where God's going, where he's going? I want to be. He is the greatest story ever told is, is his story. But yet we're, we still want to go, I don't, I don't know. I mean, where are you going, Jesus? And as, as she looks back at him, right, in response to the, does it really matter? She says, well, yeah, it does. She goes, I go where I want to go. I'm free. And you, you, don't, you, just, you can't even help but laugh at this point because you've seen the train wreck of a life that she's lived. And you're like, you, you are not free. Because I think about that, man. I mean, how many of you and I we go through our lives and we think we're free. And we know Jesus' call on our lives. We've heard him say, will you follow me? And we've thought about it. And you know, we've asked the questions, well, where are you going? I don't know if I want to go where you're going. And we, we have this understanding of ourselves, right? Well, I go where I want to go, I'm free. And I, I, Jesus looks back at her and he says, listen, you're not free, but you could be. Why don't you follow me? This is life-changing moment for this woman who ends up in the Bible, by the way, to be the first person to go, Mark tells us, to go back to the tomb and to see that it's empty. And she becomes, they call her the apostle to the apostles. She's the one who's sent to go tell the apostles, listen, you weak faith men, he's risen. And she goes and tells him, and, and, and her life is transformed by this Jesus. One of the things that's so ironic, by the way, as we just finish off this passage here in Mark, is that Levi is the one who follows. He gets up and he goes and he follows Jesus. And, and what was customary at that time, man, if you, you committed your life 
to following somebody like that. You go and you celebrate and they're at Levi's house and they're having dinner, we're told. Verse 15. And that while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house with many tax collectors and sinners were eating with them and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I think, how cool is this, man? Jesus has no problems sitting with a bunch of sinners, a bunch of broken, messed up people like you and I. Jesus isn't worried as the Pharisees would have been worried that they would get tainted by their evilness, by their sin. Jesus isn't worried that he's gonna get tainted by them. Jesus knows that they're gonna be healed through him. That they're not gonna rub off on him. He's going to rub off on them. And one of the things that's just so ironic in this is we, as we read in verse 16 now that when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners and you begin to see throughout this that the irony is, is that some of the sickest people were in fact the religious leaders. That were in fact these self-righteous Pharisees who thought their lives were so together. They're not like those other people, not like Levi, not like those tax collectors. But Jesus had come for them all. He had come for the broken. He'd come for the Levites, but he had also come for the Pharisees. And many of them followed him, and many of them didn't. And I just, as we come to a close here, I just want to ask you uh, an important question that we, you and I need to consider. And that is simply this, does God exist? Who is that God? Is Jesus actually God? And if you actually believe that, do you live as though that's true? Have you allowed him to be Lord of your life? Does, does he call the shots or do you? Do you live and pretend as though you're free? Or have you been set free through him? And as I think about that question, I've come to, to realize that, that, there are two, that there are two people, I guess, in this world. Or there's the, there, and, and, and truthfully, it tends not to be two people. We tend to just struggle through our faith in two different ways. One way is, is that we'll have what I call heart or emotional doubt about Jesus about the Bible, about Christianity. Or we'll have intellectual doubt about Jesus, about the Bible, about our faith. And as I, as I think about the kind of doubts that you and I have, listen, I wanna challenge you with this. Doubting is not a bad thing, but I want to encourage you to stop hiding from it. If you continue to hide from your doubt, you will never follow Jesus. You'll never follow anything. It's be like a leaf in the wind. I think it's interesting what Dallas Willard said. Dallas Willard was a godly man. He died recently. He wrote a book called the, well, he, he wrote a bunch of different things and his daughter put them together after he died in this book called The Allure of Gentleness. He was a gentle, lovely man, but he was brilliant. Love Jesus dearly, and he said this. He says, many times we cannot deal with doubt honestly because we are afraid there isn't an answer. Is that you? Do you maybe got some emotional doubt, maybe some hurt that's going on in your life, and you're just not quite sure that this Jesus can actually answer what's going on in your heart? 
Or do you have intellectual questions and, and doubts and you're, you're just not sure that there's answers so you're fearful to follow those through? Well, Dallas says this. He says, this is because we are weak in our, our, our own faith and need to restart, uh, sorry, that we need to restate here that the greatest problem for the gospel of Christ today is not the doubt that is outside the church, but the doubt that is inside the church. One of the greatest challenges that we have isn't the doubt out there, it's the doubt in here. The doubt that you and I need to wrestle through in our own lives. But you'll never do that unless you know that you have the freedom to do that. And I want to encourage you as you do encounter and go through and deal with the doubt in your heart and your mind, your faith will be strengthened. It will change you. This is one of the reasons why we host the Apologetics Canada Conference, is it's an opportunity for you to deal with the doubts and the questions that you have in a place that is, that is open to being able to think through the important questions of life. Man, have I found how this has changed me. Dallas goes on to say this. He says, many Christians in their heart of hearts also believe that their faith is just another superstition. They really do. That is why I often say that I know many people who believe in Jesus, but don't believe in God. I know many people who believe in Jesus, but don't believe in God. What Dallas is ultimately saying is this. There's a lot of people that have made church tradition. There's many people who come to something like this and they come to something like this because that's what you do on a Friday night if you don't got anything to do or that's what my friends are doing or this is just makes me feel like a better person if I come here and, and Dallas is saying, listen, that, that, that is only gonna mess you up. Believing in Jesus is, is never going to change your life unless you understand that he is Lord of the universe and then he's Lord of your life. And the only way that you and I will ever deal with those doubts is when we are willing to stop being afraid and to tackle what's going on in our hearts and our heads. So I want to encourage you to do that. And this is a great opportunity. This is a great community from which you can do that. We are open to doubts and to questions and to walking with one another as we work through the different stuff that we're thinking and experiencing as we seek to grow in our relationship with God together. And so uh, the, the worship band can come up now and we're gonna just transition into uh, communion here. And communion is a very uh, physical representation of this spiritual reality that we're talking about. It's this reminder to us that Jesus is Lord of the universe, but he's not some sort of you know, tyrannical ruler that this Lord that is Lord of the universe but wants to be Lord of your life is, is the one who loves you, that created you and seeks to be in relationship with you and demonstrated the depths of that through his life and death. And so as we come to the communion table, this is an opportunity for us to come as a family to the dinner table as where we uh, fellowship with one another as one community. And one of the, the symbolic uh, aspect of what's taking place here is the meal that we're partaking in is a very simple one here of just bread and juice. But the point of it is to remind us of Jesus, to remind us of his body that was broken for us, to remind us of this juice that represents his blood. And part of a community is that we can all come together and partake. And so as you know, we, this bread is gluten-free, 
this juice is, is just juice, and we can come together, and you take the bread, and you dip it in the juice, and it's a reminder to you that you have been called to follow. Will you follow? Now, there's some of you that's been following Jesus for a long time, and I just want to encourage you to come to the table today. Ask yourself, is there, is there anything that's holding me back from, from fully following Jesus? Do, what kind of doubts are going on in my heart and my mind? What, is there anything that I need to, to, to work through as, I, as you just come to the dinner table tonight? And maybe there are some of you here that this is, this is maybe your first time where you're like, you know what, I actually wanna follow Jesus. I wanna answer that call and I, I wanna come and I wanna have a relationship with him. I would encourage you that this dinner table is open to you, that this is an opportunity for you to come in a very tangible way and to say, yeah, Jesus, I do wanna follow you and I know that I can't lead myself but I do believe that you can lead me somewhere better than I can. I wanna follow you. Let me just pray and the worship team will lead us and we'll partake. Lord God, as we just come before you tonight, Lord, I, I just pray that, that you would be at work in each one of our hearts and our minds. God, that we would get serious in our faith and that we wouldn't be afraid to deal with the emotional and intellectual doubts that we're struggling with, the questions that we have. I find that, that God, some of us don't wanna deal with those those doubts, because we know that once we see you as Lord, we know that to do anything other than to give our lives to follow you would be nonsense. And so in some ways, I think it's, it's scary for some of us to take that faith, but God, I pray that you would just give us boldness to deal with our, with our doubts, that we might have a strong and flourishing faith that, that what Dallas talked about wouldn't be true of our church, it wouldn't be true of this community, that we would be solid and our understanding and our relationship with you. And so as we come to the communion table tonight, God, we just ask that you would meet with us and that in a very powerful and tangible way, we would follow, we pray in your name, amen.